Hello and welcome to another episode of the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important classics and contemporary films. My name is Chris and I am joined finally again by my usual co-host Tom. Hello. And we're, we're, we're back to it. We're back to our regular scheduled programming. Yeah, after, after 30 plus films at MIF. Yeah. You saw, and I saw one. You saw one. Well, tell us about it. <laughs> Violence Voyager. Yeah. The really abstract Japanese animation, Geki style. Mm-hmm. Uh, very odd sci-fi. It was great. Right uh, up your and, alley. <laughs> and completely niche, and there's probably like a hundred people in the whole of the world that would probably enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, you being one of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I really liked it. Uh, if you like people, if you like drawings stuck on lollipop sticks, and then have them have the mouths gotten like poles. Fuck! Uh, if you got holes poked through the mouths, and then you squirt tomato sauce through them for blood. Yep. If, you, if that sounds good, then you should watch the movie. That is definitely creative, at least. Yeah, it's very strange. Yeah. I'm intrigued for it. I'll, I'll try and track it down eventually, but... Myth is now done, mm-hmm. so it's time to settle back in for some regular criterion. That's right, this time Tokyo Story. Yes, the Yasujiro Ozu classic from 1953. Widely considered to be one of the best films ever made. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's easy to see why. Um, I had never heard of it prior to viewing. Mm-hmm. Because, um, I, I, because, well, actually, no, you had mentioned it previously a couple times. Because I think when we, because this is our, and whatever. And, and this is our second Ozu film as well. I think I probably would have mentioned it mm. when we did Good Morning. Mm. Correct. Mm. So. Well, we should do a, a synopsis. Yeah. Um, a retired couple heads to Tokyo to meet up with their children and grandchildren. And although everyone is pretty polite, the trip doesn't go all too well. Yeah. The, and, the uh, kids basically don't seem to have time or patience for their parents. That's right. So I guess, I mean, the film is a look at the Japanese family unit. Yeah, it's essentially, yeah. Uh, but I think what makes this really special is just the way that that's approached. Because you could make any kind of drama that's about a family catching up. Mm. And it, it could, I mean, it'd be so easy to just go like throw in, throw in some sh- emotional schlock and fucking yeah. some like melodrama over the top crap and, and be like, yeah, cool, everyone's engaged. And I, I was trying to look at like after rewatching this again and prepping for this episode, I was like, I'm gonna see if there are any like video essays or anything popping around online. And I saw one by this guy who was saying it's, it deals with these kind of very lofty family emotional themes without being schmaltzy and the clip that he then cuts to is like Forrest Gump and his mum just like, I'm dying Forrest and the music swelling and it's like, he's like, he doesn't do any of that shit to like evoke emotion. It's just flat wide shots, no music. It's just such a universal story that you connect with and- Perfect comparison. Yeah. Because that movie is very good at cheaply giving you emotional Cheap is the best way to describe Forrest Gump. <laughs> I mean, it's a great Forrest Gump's its own kind of nice movie, but yeah, it's it's very on the nose when it's trying to pull yeah. the emotional <laughs> heartstrings. Yeah. Whereas this is so subtle and delicious. Yeah. And um, I think there's a much greater depth to be had from it. I found myself, it's really long, and it's very, very, very slow. Mm. But I found myself 
feeling like I was wrapped in a warm blanket the whole time. Yeah. Um, because the family is just your average family, but it's, uh, it's, it's presented in such a way that it's no one, it's nothing is in your face. Mm. Um, it's quiet. There's fuck. Trying to explain myself. Well, I, I've got like on that note. Um, the film critic A.O. Scott uh, had a really great comment on that. He's like, the film deals with such giant lofty themes, but it itself is anything but. Mm-hmm. Like it's just a nice, small, quiet, unassuming film that manages to so expertly deal with these like incredibly huge and heavy themes. Yeah. So should should we talk about the themes? Mm. Um, start going through them. Uh, basically the Every single child seems to be, I'm going to say, too busy. With the exception of um, the daughter who's still living. Yeah. No, Noriko's the daughter-in-law. But it's the other sister that, uh, the other daughter that still lives at home with the parents and hasn't actually moved out to Tokyo or uh, Osaka. Okay. Yeah. With the exception of that, everybody seems to be kind of too busy, or at least they're they're not trying to be, I, I wouldn't say that... Say, like, the oldest daughter, she seems to be a bitch, but she's just kind of wrapped up in, you know, her own life. She's trying to run a, um, a hairdresser's salon. Uh, she's got her own things to worry about, and she doesn't seem to have any time for her parents, even though they've come down to visit her. See, I would argue she is a bitch. <laughs> I, I think the, the two eldest are horrible well, people. I, I think. <laughs> like, within sure. reason... <laughs> Sure, sure, sure. In, in compa- because the, if there wasn't, I would excuse their behaviour and stuff if it weren't for the film so expert, like so brilliantly shining a spotlight on someone who also has those same issues yet is still able to make time. Mm-hmm. Which is Noriko, the, yeah. the widow of yeah. the middle son. Yes, and, son. but but I would argue she as a character is only able to make time because she herself is in a similar position to the parents of having someone she loved no longer living with her and out of her life and feels that loneliness and compassion and so she's a kind of in a similar kind of emotional state as the parents so that's why she's able to reach out and connect with them on that level whereas the kids haven't experienced that and aren't going through something like that and so they're a little bit distant in in that regard but i mean and she's certainly an anomaly cole um i think you have to i agree that the daughter is a cunt the yeah. oldest daughter is a cunt, yeah. selfish. I, I, I think the son is so bad, he's very busy with his career and he has a young family. Yeah. His wife is very supportive as they can be. Mm-hmm. You have to, I think you have to take, um, particularly the daughter being selfish as she is, a little grain of salt for the way that Noriko um, explains it to the other sister at the end. Yes, yeah, I was going to get to that. Gives, yeah, she gives them, she gives it, puts it in context. It's the only reason why you might cut things from stuff. And that's precisely why I do. And you're right. There's, there's at the end. Um, no, I was gonna. Okay, no, that's alright. We'll bring it up now. Sorry, I just, I really enjoyed watching it with Tom. Sorry. Yeah. Oh no, it's a, it's a amazing film. <laughs> yeah. You're trying to describe it for. I would, I would call it very meditative. Sure. That's a great word for it, actually. Yeah, yeah I think. You just yeah. sit and breathe and watch it. Yeah. Anyway, I'll try. And... <laughs> Well, well, you bring up a good point because uh, Noriko certainly is the anomaly because although you could say that the eldest daughter is a bitch because she has no time for her uh, parents and then by comparison the youngest daughter is 
you know, an, a, an emotional uh, young woman that's uh, very ready to give time. She just happens to not be in Tokyo. I mean, she lives with the, the parents back in... Yeah. The, 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 it, I forget where the village is, but yeah. it's, a, it's, it's a small southern village, yeah. And she doesn't understand the approach of the elder sister in any case. And then Noriko is kind of in the middle, but can see it from both sides. So I think that although the eldest daughter is a, acts like a bitch, it's very, <laughs> the film is very good at explaining and letting us understand her in such a way that it's, she's not really at fault. I mean, she's, she could be more polite and less intense, but she's still, she's still it, just trying to get by herself. I, I don't think, uh, I'll counter that with, I don't think the film explains where she's coming from. It, it excuses. Okay. Um, because I think she, she, there are a couple of in, things that she does throughout the film that I think are, like there's, there's no coming back from in terms of her selfishness, mm -hmm. despite as much as you want to try and explain it away and like be like, this is why she is that. It's like, yeah, that's just excusing it. It's not like justifying it in any sense, I get. Yeah, like, you want to cover some stuff at the end, she's just a bit. Yeah, and the two key points are like the morning clothes, where she, and then like the, the like, when it gets, spoiler alert, the mother dies shortly after their trip to Tokyo where they, the kids neglected to spend time with them. She is so flippant and just like pie in the sky about the time she quote unquote spent with her mother yep. in Tokyo. But then the blase nature of her being like, all right, well, I'm going to bring the morning clothes along. And then it's like the film very wonderfully presents the two kids that brought morning clothes are the ones that seem to care less about and are so very... They're the most detached. Yes, yeah. And they're so detached to an extent of like, all right, well, cool, like blah, blah, blah. Let's like prepare for death in this sense. And then the way that they're like, it's literally the day after their mother has died and their father is now alone. They're like, cool, well, let's catch the night train back. We got, yeah, yeah we you got, did, you got we this piece this. out. We did this. We're I mean, the fact that they've brought their morning clothes yeah. means that they've already detached largely and exactly. prepared. Like, oh, it's not a big deal where you could suggest that the others didn't bring their morning clothes because, because they're, they're not, not ready to, for, for this moment to occur and they're not ready to say goodbye. And you've got that 50-50 with, uh, with the youngest son where he didn't bring his morning clothes but he also didn't arrive in time. So it's like he's, he's like on that cusp of... Yeah. But, that, but that's... But that's the. Main but that's also, and that's also the, the film, and that's also the the kind of strata of the age of the kids as well. Like the the older they get, the more detached and everything they're becoming. But just sticking on this one point of uh, the sister, oh, the, sorry, the daughter, um, the in, and <laughs> I want to say like she is inexcusable. It's when the parents come back early from the spa, and she's got a client there that she's doing her hair and stuff for. And they're quite, they're all like, someone's like, oh, who are they? And she refers to her fucking parents as, oh, just friends from the country. Yeah. Like, no. Like, God damn it, no. Like, that is how detached and selfish and, like, non-observant she is, I think. Okay. Uh, yeah. And it's, and it's and played off as an offhand it. little line as well. That's yeah, right. it's just so harsh. But I think that's, I mean, you need to have the... It, it just, sorry, it proves how inconsequential her parents are to her. But you need to have those extremes to start to explore the problems of growing up yes. and building your own life and then having your... I mean, at a certain point, the family unit to her when she was younger uh, would have been her whole life mm. and she would have been heavily dictated. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, of the older characters, a lot of the, the grandfather's friends, they've all... 
they're all kind of getting drunk and feeling sorry for themselves almost because they never, they, they tried to have their input with their kids and get them to a place of some high level of social status or whatever. And that all seemed like they'd failed. I mean, even the, the mm. grandfather, the... Uh, our main protagonist. Yeah. Our main protagonist um, explains how, although my oldest son is a doctor, he's not, he's not the best doctor in the world. Uh, See, I, I view that scene, him finally caving and making those kind of comments as him trying to fit in. Oh, really? Because, like, he opened... Like, at the beginning of that scene, like, another quote I had written down was, like, when uh, the old sheriff of their town is, like, really going after his kid and stuff, um, the grandfather just simply says, like, um, the times have changed and we just need to face it. Like, mm. that's... And that's like, the overall kind of message of the film. It's the idea of growing, adapting, changing, and I think being that, okay with that. That's interesting because, I mean, he certainly... It feels like the generations are... It's, it's hard for them to connect. Mm. And you could say, based off the clothes that, that the, certainly the kids are wearing, certainly mm. the sons and daughters are wearing, they're all kind of modernised, for want of a better word. Yep. Contemporary, uh, for the 50s. And um, the clothing that the grandparents are wearing is very old school. Traditional mm. Japanese gowns and whatnot. Um, and so there's a big separation between the generations culturally. Uh, and I think really that's what the film is trying to explore is oh, that yeah. there is there is a disconnect within the family unit because something has shifted drastically in a single generation. And yeah. I guess like you could read into that that it's post World War Two, all II, of that. Yeah. Westernization um, of Japan, you could read yeah. into that. Um, uh, and I, I think that is also a giant subtext of the film. Like continuing on from that, like the the costume aspect of, you know, the difference in wardrobe, it even goes down to the difference in their houses. Like the places that they stay at, their their kids' houses in Tokyo, you never see anything out the door except for a brick wall. Mm-hmm. Anything out the windows is always a brick wall, an alley, nothing. But then we get to the parents' place and there's like trees and garden and sun and oh, sky. A, there's a temple in the background. Exactly. It's, it's, it's showing that this was the old... It's the drastic change of like the urbanisation and the industrialization and the modern world versus what they've been used to. And, and it's no one's fault. It's just yeah. the, the inertia of the times. Mm. And I would argue, even go... So this, this is my like lofty, wanky, filmy <laughs> assumption. Um, but it's like even the title itself, Tokyo Story. It, it itself is a kind of thematic reflection. It's yes, it is about a story, a story of this elderly couple going to Tokyo, but in the the, the thematic elements that we like experience through them, it's a mirror image of Tokyo itself, growing, adapting, changing, and that's it's using this family unit as a way to kind of, in a meta way, <laughs> explain and how yeah. Tokyo itself is growing and changing. Yeah, no, I totally. So it's a story about Tokyo. Yeah, a snapshot. Yeah through a few generations past World War, yeah. World War II. Uh, so I'm going to pull my head out of my ass for that. <laughs> After mentioning that, <laughs> lofty notes. Yeah. smug. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's good. That's, I like that. Mm. But th- that, is, that is what he's trying to go for, I think. So, yeah. Uh, I, think, I mean, there's even the, the, the sequence where... Uh, the grandmother first meets her grandchildren and they just fucking run. Like, they're, they're not even... That's so they're, good. They're so separate to her experience that they're just like, I'm scared of this. Like, mm. i got to get out of here. And it's it's so funny. Like, early on, you play that. It, it's kind of played for a laugh and it's that very cute kind of ozu playfulness, like, similar to something you'd see in, like, Good Morning. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, the, the rambunctious little kids being rascals, but then you're like, oh, that actually is 
a, the, like a giant glaring thing for the film. And then that's like so wonderfully emphasized when the grandmother takes the youngest kid out for a walk. And it's like the little kid's like picking grass and doing whatever. And the grandmother's like, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And then, and then it cuts to like, they're never in the same shot. And then you realize like, oh, she's not talking to him. She's talking to herself. Like, oh, (laughs) this is, yeah, okay. (laughs) This is the detachment here. Yeah, I mean, but that's, I think that's what is remarkable about this is like, how can you, it's amazing that the film can cover off on so much with such a simplistic (laughs) style. With doing so little. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, it's fucking incredible. Yeah, and the fact that like, even you look at the, like the cinematography and everything, it's not conventionally shot. Like, even dialogue scenes back and forth, there's no over-the-shoulder coverage. It's just always mid-to-wide shots, and it's everything's... It's going for that almost full, like... De- it, it, the camera in the film itself is detached from the characters. There's this extra layer to kind of yeah. hammer home that whole point. Well, I think, that, I mean, the film, I noticed a couple of times that it breaks the 180-degree angle... Yeah. ...shooting style. To, again, kind of put you like detach you again as an audience be like that's something's off here and yeah. yeah like like yeah i mean i guess you could say that there's there's a struggle to communicate with between the characters apart from their generations uh and i guess that expresses quite well how you know with camera work mm. that there's an detachment between the audience myself and the characters here too yeah and the fact that the camera moves twice in the film I picked up the, the once, there's like a trucking shot. And it's them after they've gotten back from the spa and they realise yeah. that... And he makes the joke of like, well, we're finally homeless. <laughs> and it's this beautiful little tracking shot, like kind of, yeah. Yeah. There's that and there's one more time and I forget where it was, but I kept, kind of noticed that and kept track and was like, okay, so it's very much unlike other films that were being made at that time, which were very... Like, jump to Kurosawa, it's very flashy and he's doing everything he possibly can with a camera. Whereas Ozu's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a step back from here. Like, yeah, like let's well, just... I don't recall that in... What was the other thing we watched? Good Morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing... I mean, he clearly doesn't enjoy moving the camera around. He, he's really interested. He doesn't in... rely on it as a way to express emotion. He sure. does it through his... Like, I mean, he does it through his visuals, but in a different way. Yeah. Um, but there's what... a lot of care and attention on trying to get a, a frame right. Holy and keep, crap, and keep the frame yes. right. Um, this film, like, I always knew he was a massive influence on uh, Wes Anderson, but, like, watching this film, I'm like, oh, yeah. I get it now. Like, you know, seeing it again, like, this, I, yes. Yeah. This oh, is yeah. exactly where Wes Anderson has stolen his framing devices from and how he shoots a film. Is that what you're Except, No, I just wanted to say that I love, I think that's why I find it entertaining. Mm. Yes, that's the other Cole's just mentioned as well. There's that a, a name for that shot. There's a name for that shot. But uh, sorry, we all just in case the bike didn't pick that up. Cole mentioned um, why she also loved it as well. It's that perfect framings and thing. Uh, the framing way well, he frames the shots, but it's always captured from a low angle as well. That's called the. Like t- you're sitting on the floor with them. Yeah. Like you're just sitting in the house watching these lives occur. Yeah, that's called the tatami shot. Yes. And it's named after Tatami Matting that you put in the house and you sit down on and you converse with your family, right? Or friends or whatever. And it is a massive staple of Ozu films. <laughs> yeah. It's really great because um, I was thinking like, 
Like, why, why is that shot so effective? And I, I was thinking about it because, I mean, they're all over the place in the film and I was like, why, why? I mean, clearly you would put it down low so you're, you're an audience sitting with the family and viewing them almost like, I mean, it's kind of like a fly on the wall, but, yeah. but a little bit closer, yeah. but, but further, further, like far away. Like a subjective to... lens, you kind of, sure. yeah. Um, but every single shot is, when he's using the tatami shot, every single shot is, it's almost like a 2D thing. Yeah. You know, like... And you'll have characters walk in and pop into frame and it's all this, it's like the prime, best example of like the rule of thirds. Like he's filling every aspect of the frame and yeah. But it's like usually, I mean, say, let's just bring it up Wes Anderson, right? And yeah. He'll, and he'll use these kinds of shots in the sense like he wants a one... Um, one point perspective. Yes. And you don't want to, you want to put the camera um, higher or lower because you'll start getting more than one point yeah. perspective. And you give that one, and you add depth to that by filling the four mid and background with something. Yeah, but he's but where Wes Anderson does those shots, and you can kind, you can see the three dimensional pointing sort of towards it. the center a lot of the time. Yes, or or the thing that has to be in focus, or yeah. There's a lot of shots <clears throat> in this film that that they don't actually do that. They have. It is one point of perspective, but he starts putting objects in the way to to stop you from seeing lines pointing towards the center. So your eye so doesn't know where to be drawn. Yeah, it really becomes like some kind of two two dimensional painting or whatever you want to call it. Mm. Um, and yeah, like in a strange way, to me, it felt like a kind of dreamscape. Do you know? Like mm. it didn't seem. I mean, you're you're looking at real characters real family or whatever but the way that it shot in this sense was there was a sense of of strange surrealism i suppose yeah i, I don't know maybe i'm like reading into it too much but um but i that's where the meditation comes from i suppose like it was everything is that's happening is is very lived in and, and day to day and i can and i've you know um I've done and experienced what these guys have done and experienced yeah. again and again and again, but the way that it's presented is such a strange abstraction. Mm. And, the, and the fact that it is, it's, like you said, like going back to the cluttered aspect of the shot, mm. it, it's, it's adding in a familial element where you're just like, it, he's not trying to make it look clean and sterile and like a movie set. He's like, no, this is just a house. Mm. And because of that, it helps add, to add to the kind of the universal nature of what he's talking about. Like, it, it helps you connect with the characters in the story because you're like, oh, yeah, I, this, yeah, this looks lived in, this looks real, this is just a house. I know these fam- these people, I know this, these like, what's going on, I know this family. Yeah. I don't know, I think, like, a lot of the sequences are uh, um, so long and drawn out, but because the compositions are so rich, they're so simple, yeah. but so rich, that, like, I just don't give a fuck. Like, mm. It's just marvelous to watch every every single shot yeah and i started off like on this watch being like man the dialogue's kind of stilted and kind of awkward and i'm like no it's realistic like that's just realistic sounding dialogue like lots of yeah it's, it's a lot of the oh yeah like very short proper. proper and you're like yeah no that that's about right that works <laughs> well i think that's yeah the, the whole oh yeah thing that happens a lot mm-hmm. especially with the grandfather yeah. And you, you can tell that there's like a crazy, people just want to be polite. Yeah. And not, there's problems and people are, like you can. No one wants to have an airing of the grievances. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's the really deep 
human human problems that are happening, but everybody's happy to go, oh yeah. Oh yeah, okay. Yes, yes. Sure. let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Okay. Yeah. Let's not make waves. No one wants to be at fault. No one wants to blame. It just is. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's, that's why I want to call the eldest daughter a bitch, but because there's, everyone seems to be happy and understanding. The yeah. characters are understanding of everybody. Yeah. So I don't want to just be straight up like, that's, she's a bitch and I can't believe they're all not fucking on her. So... Yeah, but that's, yeah, it's it's um, it's a fucking strange. It's a weird and it's wonderful a little film, right? Movie, yeah. Um, which I adore. But what else we got here? Well, just the other thing that I like. I, I have another wanky, lofty, filmy comment. If you'd like to hear it. Yeah, I love them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the idea that like the fact that Ozu doesn't move his camera. Mm -hmm. It's. Like, he, he's going to be static within his frame and let the world move around mm -hmm. the film, which is essentially, a, again, symbolic of what's happening with the characters and the film. It, it is, life is moving on around them and they're kind of stagnant and just like, oh, okay. Like, stagnant? Well, that's probably, yeah, that's a harsh word to say. I would just, like... It, what's a good way to kind of describe, like, you know, the, the old guard, essentially, like the yeah. older generation and just like watching life pass them by. That's I, what... But that's, that's universal. I think, I mean, I watched, uh, watched my grandparents and you know, you know when you met like a, an old person, they're racist? Oh, yeah, yeah. And they're everywhere. Oh, yeah. Um, and because and, <laughs> they're from another generation and stuff and you go like, ah, that's okay. You're like, they're not bitches. You just understand them. You understand them and you're like, cool, I now know certain topics not to bring up. Yeah, but, but they... Just, like, we won't discuss the unpleasantness. It's a universal thing. I think every culture is just like, they're old. Yeah, they they're, they're going to be they dead soon and then racism, hope, like, you know, they'll, like, that's another thing, hopefully. For a period of their lives, they could, like, say things that would move <laughs> shit around and tear shit up. Yeah. Now they're old. And, you know, I don't think it's necessarily that. I think it's more that it was they th thought it was okay to say and think shit like that. Well, it was then. Yeah. It's not yeah, there's, no, there's, there's no point teaching an old dog truth. Yeah, because they're going to be dead soon. He's like, yeah, just, just, ugh. All right, love. It's yeah, it's. <laughs> no. <laughs> but that's but that's the the attitude that the uh, that the eldest daughter and the eldest son have. They're like, they're just old. We'll have to entertain them and we'll do our best. But ultimately, it's a fucking. I can't be fucked a little bit. When they go, everything's be back to normal. Yeah. And they're not going to really mind because they're old. Yeah. But it, it's that thing you kind of hope for at the end of the film. It's sad. Yeah, it's, it's, it's ultimately a very sad meditation on family because you want, especially at the end, after the mother dies, for the, daughter, the, the two elders to kind of have a realisation of we thought we were spending time with them, but we weren't, and we squandered that. And, like, the, the youngest brother has a comment of you can't um, serve, serve your parents after, from the grave. Like, mm. and you hope that that's going to be a reflection, like, the, the older kids are going to figure that out, but they're like, nah, cool, so let's get the light train home. Can I have some more rice, please? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. it's just like, ah, oh, you are becoming that, you are set in your ways, similar to, you are becoming the old folks of, this is how this is, and this is how I am, and meh. But do you think that the, the eldest daughter and the eldest son, I mean, they're going to be... They're going to be the old people eventually. Well, that, that's what I'm meaning. And the, by their incapacity to kind of change or like have any growth after this kind of very sad event is them, it's the kind of 
hitting the nail on the head of like, yeah, okay, that's that's what this is. It's this giant cyclical thing of, yeah. This is like the human problem. Yeah, <laughs> and it's whether or not you can acknowledge it in enough time to change. Because <laughs> at the end, again, when like Nareko is, is talking to the youngest daughter, saying and the youngest daughter's going do you think you're going to be a total asshole when you're grow when you're older and and she says like i i think i will in spite of myself yeah so it's like and i think that is her i think she oh this is me reading into it a bit much but i, I feel like she's saying that based on the experiences she's just been through <laughs> yeah and she's looking at i mean she's she's in that intermediary step where yeah. she's looking at the older sister and going like yeah she's a bitch but you know, we're all going to be bitches probably sooner or later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because that's life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's essentially. The film is this giant weird meditation on life. <laughs> and, they, and they say, like, flat out, like, do you think life is disappointing? Yes, it is. <laughs> that's, uh, but, but, but. This is the most nihilistic film ever. <laughs> it's, it's not about learning and changing growth. It's a snapshot of a life cycle that will continue. Yeah, yeah. Know, that those grandparents were not the same as those kids at that age. Exactly. It's a snapshot of different ages. You've got the little kids, the grandparents who are always shy and run away from, don't have time for grandparents at all. Then the younger people who work very, very hard and still appreciate family because they're half in the door of still being at home, but half out the door of being grown ups. The two oldest have their own families. Yeah. They're just, they're at a different pace of what the grandparents were. I don't think it's a matter of they don't have time and they don't care. Their lives are on a different time scale right now. Yeah. Mm. Eventually they will slow down just like these grandparents. Yeah. They will get to that. It's just... And their kids are not going to have time for exactly. them. Exactly. It's just a fucking That's life right. cycle. Yeah. Right. I don't think you can be that harsh on those older brothers and sisters unless you know how the parents were. It could just... Well, the, the grandfather was a drunk at around. times. It's, See, I would be okay. Like, I, I really have a bee in my bonnet about the, the daughter saying they're friends from the country. Like, just say they're your parents. She, that is the shittiest thing. She is a nasty piece of work, but I don't think that has anything to do so much with how she treats her parents. She's a nasty piece of work, one way or another. Yeah. Her brother... See, no, no, no he's yeah. He's not a bad person, but he's in the same boat. Yeah, I understand that. I sympathise more with the, the brother. I'm just saying, like, the... It's mainly the daughter who is just like, ugh. But, but she's not a she's not rude or obnoxious or or a piece of shit to her parents face to face. Just a ba- it's just almost like a secret. Everyone's very polite. It's, it's but what does she gain or lose by making that comment? It's not. I think like you're getting caught up on her character when it's. I think it's more about just showing that one extreme of the pink. Oh, no, I, no, I get it, I get it. But I just, I just really don't like her. <laughs> no, sure, I, that's right. The other thing as well, I don't know, maybe it's just our current position has made me think about it more, but I do kind of believe that you reach a certain age where it is healthy and normal to have that distance from your parents. Oh, yeah. Have that. The younger ones, of course, are much more involved. The difference between... Like, they're more reliant. Well, they're just closer to it. Mm. I think... As parents, I think if we got to the stage where our kids were 30 and 40 and were that involved with our lives, I'd be like, what's going on? Yeah. You shouldn't, like, you should, we should not be the main part of your focus of your life. Of course. And as soon as you have children, your entire sh- focus shifts. Mm. And we become the secondary, lesser important family. It's absolutely the way it works. And the film actually even goes to lengths to examine that with Noriko and the parents themselves 
pushing on her to move on and grow and change and start a new life. You look at the kids that don't have kids, who's the most important person in their family to them? Mm. Their parents. Yeah. The ones who have families of their own, kids and husbands and children of their own, who's the most important person in their family? Their family. Is, she is but, a bitch though, yeah. but the brother isn't, but that's just looking at yeah. the different age groups. Yeah. I would say, yeah, the brother's not a bitch, he's just terse. <laughs> and very, yeah. Yeah. He's a very practical man. He's on the spectrum going towards, I mean, the, everyone will be different, everyone's got a varying degree. He's of, just disconnected. Sure. Yeah. But Noriko, I mean, given, let's, let's put a hypothetical out here. If Noriko's, the second son didn't die, didn't go missing and potentially die in the war, and, young, young and then he came back and then Noriko and him had a baby. I think Noriko is very aware that she would say, well, I don't I'd, have time I'd be for you. very different and I wouldn't be giving time. I mean, yeah. she gives ample time, takes, Which takes is, the grandparents out and that, on, on trips. And, and that goes back to a point I made a while ago where why she relates and still has them in their life so much is because she's relating on them on an emotional level to them as having lost something or there's something missing from her life now that once was there. Yeah, and just because she doesn't have a, her own direct family to look after, she's, mm. she doesn't need to disassociate so much to focus, have all of her energy focused on something else. Is this the best film about family ever made? <laughs> it could, <laughs> it could it, well be, yeah. yeah. One of, I think, is a very stark and realistic view. Yeah. It's, it's got the it's largest... Yeah. It doesn't make apologies for some of the shit things about... It accepts some of the things that are just shitty about family that have to happen. Yeah, I would say that it's got the largest scope I've come across Yeah, in, for a family drama. That but is just it? dealing essentially with, like, brushing aside, like, the wanky idea of it's a meditation on Japanese, the evolution of Japanese culture and modernization, all of that, just focusing solely on the family elements. It And that's... It doesn't rely on, like say like a Royal Tenenbaums, like using abstract comedy and lightheartedness to try and to try and use that to kind of amplify and discuss yeah, okay. family. It, it's doing it specifically from a, no, this is what we're doing. We don't need anything. We don't need nothing flashy. We don't need jokes. We don't need well, the camera movement. We don't need music. We're just going to fucking do this. The Royal Tenenbaums is almost like a caricature of a family. Yes, yes. Whereas Tokyo Story is ex really exploring, I mean, I, this this might be my favorite movie, uh, one of my favorite movies ever. Now, um, it's pretty fucking great, right? <laughs> I, I love it. Yeah, because I told you we we're, were up for some good shit coming up in the collection. Yes, yeah, so this might be my favorite movie ever because not ever. My one of my favorite movies ever. Definitely one of the best ones you've seen in the last couple of years. Sure. Yeah, because it it. It's so, it doesn't even trick you into thinking about what family is. It, it, it manages to distill, I mean, it's a Japanese movie about a Japanese family, but it's so fucking universal that, and subtle and gentle in its approach that it, it lets me really explore what family means to myself. Yeah. Through my life and it gives me the opportunity to think about what am I going to be, how, how will I treat family in 20 years and how will I treat family in 40 years? Mm. He's painting with such a broad brush as well that you can connect with it on such a universal level. But like, it, it, I mean, it's so far, like this specific family dynamic is so far removed from like what you or I have as a family dynamic of like 
you know, 60 plus years ago, uh, a brother that died in the war. <laughs> like all of this elements are so kind of disparate, but at the same but time, plot points. but that's what I mean. But that's, but that's not what's important. He's painting he, like, that's the bullshit. And it's like the wide brush is family mm. and everyone has a fucking family. I think the, the mastery is he's presented this family in such a way that I can accept their flaws and begin to approach a, and my flaws, my family's flaws, mm -hmm. and begin to a, approach it uh, honestly. Yeah. Do, do you think this film has the potential of affecting audiences in like a fairy tale aspect in the sense of you get to the end of it and you're like, oh man, I should call my parents. Yeah. <laughs> like it's got that level of like morality I, tale I or did. you've got yeah. like, it, you learn something or it affects you in a way that you're like, I hope I'll probably, I'm going to call my parents now and I'll probably continue calling them like once a week for the next month and then I'll probably end up forgetting again and like moving on. But... Yeah, and you need like the reminder of Take Your Story. Yeah. Uh, but it, yeah, it, totally. Yeah. No, yesterday, I mean, I watched the film two days ago and yesterday was Father's Day. And we took that out to a, to a dinner, and yeah, the film was sitting on me in the forefront of my brain as we were sharing this family moment. Yeah, and, yeah. And like, and you're like, I was just, yeah, like, savor this. <laughs> there was a ref like as I was, you know, organizing the family, the Father's Day thing, and having the dinner. There, there was a reflection of the film happening at the same time. Yeah, um, which is really remarkable. Mm. Uh, yeah, this film's amazing. And again, like, harking back to it does so much and says so much with doing so little. Mm. <laughs> like, it, like, not much happens in the film. It's never really, like, that flashy with the visuals. Like, there's some stunning compositions and things, but it's... Like, there's no crane shots, the camera... There's no push-ins, there's no, no zooms, there's, like, nothing. It's just static and flat and does so much. Yeah. Yeah, it has no reason... To be this good yeah but it's very good except it yeah it really is but, but I, I mean like yeah it's the film is made in such a way that so much effort would have been put into all of the shot all the shots yeah like what, what, what are people wearing where are we going to put objects in the room where are we going to put the camera yeah and you just don't it, it just all works it's all seamless it all just kind of kind of almost passes you by where it's just yeah Mm. And I'm just fucking like gushing now. <laughs> yeah, blow, you, it's blown you away. Um, but I find it so interesting as well that like sticking with the idea of the sim like not simplistic but the very minimalist visuals and things of it, it and it's coming at a time where Ozu was one of the like figureheads of the golden age of Japanese cinema like coming out of po like pre and post World War II like alongside Kurosawa. And if, if you just compare the two, with the, like, they're making... They're contemporaries making these, like, great films at the same time. Kurosawa is, like, the flashy kind of show-off-y one to, like... Or, like, it, that's a kind of... You don't know, that's yeah. fine. But He's, it, like, the, the, the Tarantino, whereas this guy's more... Um... Like the Terrence Malick. <laughs> <laughs> but even Terrence Malick is fucking flashy with his... But, like, you know what I mean? He eats, like... Two contemporaries coming up at the same time, exploring the like honestly similar kind of themes and stuff in a lot of their films, and it is so drastically different. Yet they're same country, same time. They were friends, and it's just like how wow, it's two 
completely different artists, yeah. like revolutionizing a country's cinema. Yeah, I always found it amazing that um, Japan just seems to be just. Uh, th- I mean, at that stage, I suppose you would call it like the golden age of Japanese cinema, just yeah. because of those two directors. Oh, and there are a few others as well. I'm sure there are. A few yeah. Others. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're, they're just. I'm, I just want to use two examples, like polar op- kind of opposites and visual stylings. But yeah, they just. Gotta watch Japan. Gotta yep. watch Japan. There's <laughs> well, very it's, interesting going It's like on a there. similar kind of thing as what's happening now with uh, Korea. Korean cinema is has been on the rise for like the last 10, 15 years, and that shit is incredible. Yeah, I'm still I've seen nearly two hundred films this year, and nothing has beaten Parasite yet. <laughs> like, oh, I gotta watch that still. Holy crap, that film! <laughs> what else? I, I enjoyed the. Uh, you know when they when in the film they cut from scene to scene, and you get those lovely shots that are just they're kind of just. The landscapes and the lanterns. And lanterns and, and, you know, pictures of, of you know, clouds and mm-hmm. fucking all this quiet shit. He, he's doing that because, if you notice as well, never the film never does a fade or a wipe or anything. It's always hard cuts. Yeah. And he's using that as kind of uh, outside and landscape and exterior shots as transition. Like, yeah. this is how we're moving now. <laughs> and it's really effective. Like... And usually they're the only times you will ever hear music as well. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Like it's a radio in the background or something. Yeah, it gives you the illusion of, is this diegetic, is it not? Like what's... It's, uh, it, to me, yeah, well, I mean, going back to what you were saying about Forrest Gump and it's, and it's music that's going to try and pull your, your heartstrings. Yeah. You're not going to get that here where it's going to try and manipulate you beyond just your, your, uh, your viewing of the family. You're not going to try and get... Like the music's not going to fucking cheapen it. Yeah. It's because he's so assured in his what he is doing and saying that he's like, I don't need that. <laughs> like, I think what I'm saying is strong enough on it. <clears throat> sorry. It's strong enough on its own merits that I don't need music to let the audience know how to feel. What? But I, yeah, that's true. But also, the, I think the minimalistic approach allows... It stops anything from getting in the way of really getting down to exploring the characters. Yeah. You're not using anything flashy. You're not being tricked by editing and acting and all that sort of... And acting... Uh, actually, scrap that. Scrap that one. <laughs> Acting's very important. Yeah, you're not getting, you're not getting like a, some kind of weird... He's not going to let his cameras and his thing get in the way of a film. Yeah, yeah you're not... <laughs> You don't get like some twisted version of of the story because yeah. the person likes to kind of put a little bit of flash in the in the way that they make a movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the the, uh, the the shots in between the scenes were were fucking really beautiful, and I think uh, I'm sure that I see a lot of those same shots in Studio Ghibli animation as well. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a world building experience almost. Like yeah. You really get that lived-in feeling, and and try you get to try and exist there for a moment. Oh, I think Ozu definitely has an influence on uh, Miyazaki and things. Like, yeah. if for nothing else, the f- like, yeah, those little kind of quieter moments, as well as like the family dynamic stuff, like mm. being such because that's like a lot of Ozu film is dealing with family. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think I think I've covered off on everything. You you, you good on everything? What about you? Yeah, we kind of hit everything I, I had written down, I think. Um, yeah. 
I mean, like, just, yeah, a few other little random things, but it's, like, just at this point, doubling back, and we, well, I, we've said it all, I think. Yeah, I think I want to... I want to close. I read the, the Roger Ebert... <laughs> I read the Roger Ebert uh, review, which, of course, he gave it four stars. Of course. Is it on the... I, let me check my trivia. In his great movies? Yes, it is. It's in his great movies. <laughs> it is. Of course, it's in his great movies. <laughs> of course it is. But yeah, I was reading that, and there's... Um, the, I just want to read an excerpt from it, which I think is, is really brilliant and distills it, the film down uh, into a couple of sentences. Please uh, do. And Roger Ebert says, Tokyo Story lacks sentimental triggers and contrived emotion. It looks away from moments a lesser movie would have, would have exploited. It doesn't want to force our emotions, but to share its understanding. And I think, I mean, that's, that's what we've been trying to say the whole time. But yeah. he, he put it so much better. Because he's so much more concise. Yeah. <laughs> yep. um, but I think, yeah, it's a fucking masterpiece. And uh, I absolutely adored it. it. It's pretty special. It's a pretty wonderful film. Yeah. It was pretty funny. I, I have the old, the original Criterion DVD. And um, the other day I was getting ready to rewatch it again. And... I was like, hey, Claire, do you want to watch this? And she saw the original cover, which is a very close-up black-and-white photo on, uh, I think it's Noriko's eye, and there's, like, a tear coming down. And Claire's like, fuck no, that looks, like, bleak and, like, a horror movie. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's, it's really lovely. Please sit down and watch. <laughs> yeah. she, she was the best as well. Yeah, like, I know. Noriko, like... I don't know. Who, I can't remember the actress's name, but mm. uh, she's a she's an Ozu regular as well. Like a lot of the cast kind of keep popping up in his she films. She was outstanding. And mm. She was so good. Um, well, do you want to hear a little bit of trivia? Sure. <coughs> uh, so the film is currently ranked number one hundred and seventy nine on IMDb's absolutely ridiculous top two hundred and fifty films list. Sorry <laughs> <care> about that. <laughs> but that's kind of cool that like this it, film is a, still f- fairly highly ranked. That's surprising. That's nice. This film's on on there. Which is, which is nice, yes. Yep. Um, in 2002, Sight and Sounds uh, did a poll. Uh, the direct, they got um, film directors to vote for what they think are the greatest films of all time. This came in at number one. Shut up. In the 2012 Sight and Sound Directors poll. Uh, so, in so, the, film, this is like, so filmmakers this is the filmmakers' love, best film of all time. It was the, voted number three in the critics' poll. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's... Very so much considered. I mean, from that I read that it's the most influential film of all time then, of, from living... Either that or just it's unanimously directors love this film. Like, to get that high enough ranking, it would be... Not necessarily everyone, all these directors putting it at number one, but, like, consistently it is on directors' lists as okay. a masterpiece of film. Okay. So, yeah. Can you... What's the other stuff on that list? Uh, yeah, I'll quickly look it up. Just out of interest, whenever you hear like a kind of list that's, you know, if it's filmmakers making a list, I kind of want to know about it. Okay, so here's the, uh, you want to hear like the top ten or so? Yeah, okay. Top five. Okay, so the Sight and Sound poll, it was 359 film directors and um, these are the uh, top t- top couple. You've got a Tokyo Story. Mm-hmm. 2001 Space Odyssey, mm-hmm. Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Oh, I beat Citizen Kane. <laughs> <laughs> Which was number one on the previous, like, decades poll. Okay. Uh, wow, number four is Eight and a Half. Oh, okay. Uh, number five is Taxi Driver. And then you've got uh, Apocalypse Now, Vertigo, The Godfather, 
oh wow, um, Tarkovsky's The Mirror, and then Bicycle Thieves. I haven't seen the last two, but uh, all right. Well, Bicycle Thieves is coming up in the collection, so. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Mm. That surprised me that they, yeah, I guess, you never know what a filmmaker, what a filmmaker is thinking. But um, surprised me that you put that above Citizen Kane. But as you say, it's probably like a pick ten films and we're going to put it in. Yeah, and that's one. And it was consistently film. on yeah. people's lists. And yeah. Okay. Uh, so Ozu and his longtime collaborator uh, Kogu Noda uh, spent 103 days at a country inn in Chigasaka working on the screenplay. So it took them a long ass time to write. Uh, after that, shooting and the editing advanced extremely quickly. Uh, many of the film was in uh, production for a total of four months. And that includes shooting, editing, release. was only four months because they had spent so much time on the script and knowing exactly what they were getting, what they wanted. And, yeah. It's pretty cool. So effectively, like, they're storyboarding at the same time? Essentially, yeah. And the fact that it is Ozu co-writing it as well. Like, he's, visu- like, you know, obviously. He's already got imagery going. Yeah. Uh, the original negative was actually lost soon after the film was completed uh, due to a fire at the vault in the lab at Yokohama City. Uh, the film had to be released using prints made from a dupe, uh, from a dupe protective negative. Uh, so that's why kind of some transfers and things of this film aren't as nice as they could be because the original film negatives is gone. Never mind, Tom's glazing over. But, yeah, but, <laughs> but the Criterion lease is fucking fine. It's not bad. It's pretty goddamn great, but it's, yeah, it, it's not, it could be better, is basically. Uh, you already okay. talked about the, the mat shot. <laughs> or the, um, what are they called again? Tomiko. Yes. Tomiko shot. Uh, because of Ozu's style of shooting uh, at eye level from the floor, all the sets had to be constructed with ceilings. Normally when shooting on soundstage and stuff, they wouldn't, they'd just be like, oh, we don't need the ceiling, we're not going to see it. Because yeah. Ozu's like, yeah, you will. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, all the banners that were uh, featured within the film uh, were painted by Ozu himself. Oh, cool. Yeah. I thought that was a nice well, little... There were some of the shots in between scenes. Yeah. yeah. He, he just did all those himself to like, I know how we can transition here. Let me just whip something up. <laughs> hmm. Fucking rad. Yeah, it was, it was great. It, it's a, like I said, a, it's a pretty special film. Uh, do you want to hear about the Criterion edition? Yeah. Uh, so it's in print from Criterion, still as a one-disc Blu-ray or a two-disc DVD. Comes with the special features of audio commentary featuring Ozu scholar David Dessa, editor of Ozu's Tokyo Story. Um, which is a book, not the actual film. <laughs> yeah, Tom's glazed over. <laughs> I lived, but dot 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 like ellipses uh, a two-hour documentary uh, from 1983 about Ozu's life and career featuring interviews with critics former cast and crew members talking with Ozu a 40-minute tribute to the director from 1993 featuring reflections from filmmakers Lindsay Anderson Claire Denis um, Aki Kurosaki, uh, Stanley Kwan Paul Schrader Wim Wenders bunch of people you've got this uh, this on, on DVD I have it on DVD not on Blu-ray it, it's one I had from years ago but yeah, yeah. A uh, documentary from 1988 about uh, Chishi Ryu, um, who I feel is Noriko. Uh, it's her career, and I'm uh, featuring a lengthy interview with her. Trailer, booklet, and essays that Criterion usually do. Have you watched any of that? No, I haven't. I mean, like years and years ago when I first got the edition. Yeah. yeah but not lately. <laughs> I might, this might prompt a deep dive onto especially that two-hour doco about Ozu. 
Yeah, I don't know. I think I need to watch that. You can cut this out, but I, I think... Uh, I, I would never watch social features. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. <laughs> I'm not cutting that out either. <laughs> That's fine. Well, they're not, they're not made some. for you. There's some. Like, there's, like, Terry Gilliam shit I would probably fucking lap up. Mm. Um, but, yes, yeah, so, I don't know. <laughs> Um, like I enjoy the I enjoy Tucker's story probably not so much like the you don't necessarily you got enough out of it that you don't need to deep dive onto like documentaries about but but what what I find interesting is like the docos about the filmmaker's life and career I'm like that's kind of cool like to watch a doco about him as a person trying to contextualise the films yeah yeah through the man who made them I guess that's kind of interesting but anyway our next film's a good one I'm excited Mm -hmm. for you to see this one Mm -hmm. Uh, Le Sochel Rouge Jean-Pierre Melville. What the fuck is that? The Red Circle. I don't know what that is. Is that good? Yes, it's really good. <laughs> it's a uh, it's an out-of-print one from Criterion, but uh, it's, it's uh, classic Jean-Pierre Melville, French gangstery crime okay. movie that I adore. Okay, so I'm trying to be as really vague. Like as, I'm trying to be vague as possible. I, I, I really dig it. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Mm. But I guess, unless you got anything else, that'll probably wrap us up for this week's episode, looking at Tokyo Story. That's it. That's it. All right. Well, I'm going to use this opportunity to uh, shamelessly plug that uh, Cole was on last week's episode of You Haven't Seen That, the other podcast I do, where we sat down and she absolutely schooled our friend Eric on uh, the Blair Witch Project. (laughs) (laughs) It was a good episode. It it was really great. So if you want to hear... Cole talking about Blair Witch Project. I highly recommend uh, listening to that episode. Pretty much. Um, But otherwise, yeah. I guess we'll be back in a fortnight's time with uh, Le Cirque Rouge by Melville. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, But for this week's episode, I'm Chris. And I'm Tom. See you next time. (laughs) 